0: okay uh, a very warm welcome to our Spitzenkandidaten debate today uh, road to europe um, this is an event series jointly organized with the financial times my name is Gunther wolfen i'm the director of Google, and i very much look forward to today's debate before uh, to, uh, to debate with Bas Zajkut uh, from the Green uh, European Green Party, who is the Green Spitzenkandidat, one of the two Green Spitzenkandidat uh, um, leaders today. Um, so before, before uh, I give the floor to... Uh, uh, Rochelle uh, from the Financial Times to uh, um, introduce um, the lead candidate. Um, let me give a few housekeeping uh, information. So first of all, uh, this is obviously on the record. You are allowed to tweet um, and everything. Uh, second, um, we uh, do uh, want to allow you to ask questions um, at the end. So all of you have a chance to, not all of you, some of you will have a chance at the end to, to ask some real questions in live, but before, during the first hour, you're free to ask uh, questions through Slido, and there is a code which should be available uh, on the screen at some stage, um, which you can type in on, uh, on the Slido page. <laughs> Um, and um, then directly ask a question. You can also vote for questions, if you like a question particularly, uh, please vote it up um, so that um, I can then here on my smartphone uh, select a few questions that make it up in the list. Um, And these questions uh, will be um, on uh, all the topics we discuss and we will try to sort of uh, have them during the conversation uh, so that either you from the room or the audience that is also following us live stream uh, has a chance to to ask questions uh, through uh, modern technology. Um, I think that's all for housekeeping. Rochelle, the floor over to you.
1: Thanks very much. Um, thanks very much for coming today, Baz, and for everybody. Is it not working, is that better?
0: Yes, not okay. better, yeah.
1: I'll speak a bit more. A bit more Canadian, a bit more loud. There we go. Um, I am introducing I Mycourt today, who is a Dutch Green Left Party member. Uh, he trained as a chemist in the Netherlands and started his career as a researcher for the Dutch environmental agencies, as well as participating in a number of UN climate summits. He became an MEP in 2009, and this time around, since 2014, was a member of the Committee on the Environment, Public Health and food safety. Uh, As Gunther mentioned in November he was selected as the co-lead candidate with German MEP Ska Keller for the Greens party. Um, Today we're going to cover four main topics. So the first one will be the growth agenda, second trade global and economics, and third one eurozone and euro economy, and fourth one competition and innovation policy. So we'll kick it off with the growth agenda and how to sustainably generate growth in Europe. Now, obviously, the Greens will touch on environment, but we are also trying to define sustainability as a bit more broadly, so social as well. Um, And I guess we um, see that the European economy is strong, but is showing signs of slowing. Um, There has been uh, productivity lagging and and a sort of persistent productivity problem in the EU. They need growth. Um, Your manifesto says you're going to build a socially just and environmentally sustainable Europe. Um, How will you achieve this
2: concretely? Well, I think from our perspective, climate change policies have always been also an economic policy, and I think that for us is really the core, and and I really think if you're And we're talking about the future economy of Europe here. I think it is very important then to look at the vulnerabilities of Europe. Um, We are very (coughs) resource-import-dependent continent. If you compare that to other continents all over the world, we will be one of the more importing continents. So, that means a lot of resources we are dependent of to import. Just one number, uh, there will be more numbers floating around, but just on fossil fuels, We, of course, depending on the oil price, etc., but more or less give and take, we are importing 1 billion euros each day. This is also then paying that money to regimes in the Middle East, Russia, so also geopolitically we are making ourselves dependent very much to to that level. So I do think there are good reasons for Europe to make and to change our economy into a, well, I will always say a resource-efficient economy. What is also very important is, if you see that we all signed up to the Paris Agreement, we know that our economy should be a carbon neutral economy. You can discuss the year, but let's give and take 2050. So if you know that the world is on track in that direction, you know that Europe is vulnerable because of our import dependency, and on top of that, you know that Europe can never really compete globally with the labor market, etc. so it will be on innovation. Putting that all together, it's really no rocket science, and I would say it's a no-brainer that Europe should be the one moving the first into a uh, um, resource-efficient economy and really investing on innovation to create new jobs that are there to make sure that also in the future we still have an industrial base within Europe. Also, the European Commission is very clearly stating that a carbon-neutral or climate-neutral economy can deliver additional 1 million jobs. So this is the green agenda, is inherently also an economic agenda, and that is also the reason why we are pushing for so much stronger climate action, not only from an environmental perspective, but certainly also from a future innovative economic agenda.
1: We've seen uh, the Gilets Jaunes protest that's been kicked off by, you know, an increase in fuel policies. We're, at the same time, seeing students marching in the street. I mean, there's a lot of uh, regions where this would be a very big adjustment socially as well. How how would you address that?
2: Well, well, two answers to that. First of all, um, the Gilets Jaunes were they really protesting against? that one policy, or were they protesting against broader policies of Macron, where they feel that Macron, as they call it also, is a president of the rich. His first action coming into power was to lower the tax level for the richest. Which, of course, you can debate to what extent that has an economic impact, but politically it has a huge impact. It was very clear where he stands. And then at the same time, his first real environmental policy is just another additional tax for consumers. Then they feel that they are not fairly treated. And then you can get the protest. This is also, and you mentioned it in your introduction, we as Greens in the Netherlands are called Green Left. And I think that you can see all over the boards in with all the green parties, we have always said you need to combine green policies with social policies. You have to make sure it's social just, socially just. Then how to do that? And I think here you have to touch upon the issue on taxation, where Europe is really failing. Taxation mainly on the bigger corporations. Why? We don't have competence. We, the European Union, does not have competence on taxation yet. Consequence, any taxation policy needs to be done with unanimity. Well, name me one example where Europe managed to get a taxation policy in place. Tech companies didn't work. Changing the energy taxation policies didn't work. It's all stuck. At the same time, what you see at the national level, a race to the bottom, the level of Taxation for corporations, so the, um, uh, the, profit co- uh, the profit taxation went on an average level from 35% to more or less 20% in 20 years' time. We are going down with that tax level. These are the formal levels of taxation. On top of that, they can, through tax constructions, even pay lower rates of taxation, with the consequence that governments see their income from taxation to corporations going down, and then you have two options. Or you raise your tax levels on another level, what we see, what we saw during the euro crisis. We were taxing higher levels on labor, which is the most stupid thing you can do, is taxing labor, especially in an economic crisis time, because you are deteriorating the, the labor market. Or the other one is cutting your expenditure. And that's the entire austerity program, which we will come to, I guess, as well. So that just shows you that the social promise of Europe We failed. And taxation policy is one of the key points. And that's really where we as Greens are also. Tax justice is one of our fighting themes and campaign themes for the coming elections. Europe needs to improve on that.
0: But can I ask you on, on this point? I mean, we have uh, certainly uh, heard these numbers that you just mentioned on taxation. We've heard that many, many times, indeed, marginal tax rates mm-hmm. for rich, for wealth, and so on, is, is, is going down across the board. Uh, but what to do about it? Plus I could, being pre- president of the European Commission, what would you concretely do to address this? I mean, it's all nice uh, nice to analyze, analyze this, but what can a commission president really do about it? As you know, taxation policy is decided in the Council. You would need a unanimous vote in the Council. so, So what
2: do you do? Not necessarily, because there's also a very clear article in the Lisbon Treaty saying that if the disruption of the internal market is so huge, it gives the Commission the powers to overrule that unanimity. And I think that our unfair business of taxation is a clear reason to use that article and the Commission they produced a document on taxation problems they did that in February I think where as always good on the analysis but not going for the tools that really make a difference. They were indeed then referring to the article, well, maybe we can propose that we will change that, but that will be done by unanimity. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but you need a much stronger, more political European Commission who dares to really touch upon these issues, and until now they have not done, and that is something that we Greens will do differently.
0: It's a very strong and daring proposal. Um... Would you risk creating a constitutional crisis
2: why would it be a constitutional crisis because
0: the commission will start making direct overruling uh, the spirit at least of the, of the european think, treaties yeah, are think, you ready
2: to fight that fight yes and that's why i make the, the the proposals also and i think what is the good thing of a european campaign we are now in a political campaign is also to address some of these topics and mm-hmm. until now indeed the people they were always a bit hinting at the problem, but not really making it a key project which we need to address when you are talking about the next commission. And really, this is also my criticism to the social democrats. They quite often think that you create a social Europe by adding the word social here and there, and also doing a you know a social scoreboard. If we are not changing these fundamentals, in the end, the only thing a social scoreboard will notice is that our social indicators will score less and less.
0: Can I can I ask one one follow-up question on on the whole social uh, social discussion? Um, you mentioned um, President Macron is seen as the president of the rich. I mean, do you see him as the president of the rich? Um, uh, and perhaps can I ask you uh, then on the economic uh, uh, issue? I mean, the the whole green transformation, the green New Deal that you propose. It's going to be hugely transformative, and especially people on the on the countryside that depend on cars that are left behind already now in many respects. If you look at the economic indicators, um, they are really not doing as well as people in the city. I mean, the Greens are a party being elected in the cities uh, uh, very strongly. Um, so, so, how do you how do you deal with um, uh, the, the social unrest that, for example, the diesel tax? Um, a massive diesel
2: tax will really create? Well, there were a lot of questions there. Yeah. Um, um, I think what is very important is that any political party should try to really make sure that the entire society, you know, is is getting united. This is one of our problems, is the split in society. And indeed, you see that uh, on education level, you see it urban-rural. And I think that's also why in our green policies we are also explicitly, of course, talking about an investment agenda, certainly also for the rural uh, areas. I think what is very important and, and history has shown is that if you are focusing on innovation, if you are focusing also on tough standards, and let's talk about the car industry, um, the car industry fought against any tough regulation coming from the European level for, for years. And you coming from Germany, you know very well the German car industry where they position themselves. But we managed as Greens also to put tougher standards further into the lawmaking. And now, even the law has not even been formally adopted, you see a change at the CEO level level of Volkswagen. where he was fighting against any specific policy on CO2 standards, and more specifically on e-mobility, he's now speaking out on saying, maybe this entire approach of being technology-neutral doesn't work, and we need to be more explicit and focusing on e-mobility. If a big company like Volkswagen is going to do that, you will see that the prices of e-cars will go down substantially. Those prices will go down, which will be in the benefit of a lot of people. And on top of that, a lot of people don't need to protest against the diesel prices anymore, because they don't need diesel. And that is important, but you need tough policies. And too often conservative politicians thought they are helping the people by being weak on companies. The only consequence is that the companies are not innovating and that we are lagging behind. Thanks to green policies now on CO2 and cars, we can prevent that in 10 years' time we are importing Chinese cars and still have the possibility of building themselves. And I think that's in the benefit of all of us. So I have a a question from Slido um, here, um, which is
0: actually asked by Jim Brunson. Uh, very neutral very neutral FT. how would you change how would you change the working of the european commission to prevent eu complicity in another diesel
2: scale, dieselgate style scandal um, yeah that's on dieselgate right i think here also very clear what you see as a big problem is that we have created a european market halfway So what we have done is say, okay, we have European rules, but then on top of that, we still have national authorities who will decide who will be authorized to be on the streets. That has changed slightly now, but there's still a big problem that no European or other national institute can do a recall of cars once that has been adopted on the streets by one of the other national institutions. So what you see, we create a European market, but in our rules, we are still having a lot of powers to the national authorities and what is important is that we have a European Commission who is daring also to challenge more the powers of those national authorities and that is also key because if we don't do that we will create very complicated rules by the national member states that get into so much detail that any car manufacturer knows exactly how to get around any of the testing which we saw with Dieselgate.
1: In Dieselgate, though, we saw very strong reaction in the U.S., which was easy because they weren't domestic companies in Well, I guess they didn't make cars in the U.S., but they they weren't sort of their national champions, their cars. And in spite of the air quality issues that we have, in spite of all of that, there was a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. from the companies when the targets were going through. A lot of pressure was applied. Parliament came out to push in the other direction. Do you think we need to do more? I mean, they bring up the 13 million jobs that are always in this industry. Um, There were a number of member states, pretty close to a majority, that were arguing for much more ambitious. We've seen the same thing in in the truck targets. And a lot of those people, a lot of those member states are member states where they have domestic industries that are doing this, and they're saying, actually the European Commission can set high targets and that gives our companies something to work towards, but we still seem to see the same voices saying this is, this is going to kill jobs, it's going to hurt things here, yet promising you know, electric cars in China. What, what, um, how but, can you challenge that?
2: Well, I think it is a very good example where the conservative powers in the end are not serving the interests of the people on the long term. This is a short-term agenda and absolutely I mean we know the climate agenda means a transformation of a lot of sectors in our, in our economy and that's also why we are very clearly also saying that in those regions where there will be a transition, there must be just there must be just transition. So we are also promoting just transition funds in order to help regions to really adjust to that. But I think the problem the biggest problem is if we are starting to be relaxed about it, it feels like, OK, then we can survive for a while. But what you see is regions outside Europe will they will speed on, they will move on, they will go for the innovation. And in the end, we all do know that if you want to go to this carbon-neutral economy in that sector as well, yeah. then you will have to change your current policies on a combustion engine. You can wait, be relaxed, think you're nice for the jobs, mm-hmm. but that's what I said. Then later on, we will be importing those, and that will kill the jobs. Or you can push them now, go for innovation and see Volkswagen adjusting their policies now already, saying, hey, we need to adjust our policies. And that's exactly what we need, that they see the future is there, we are moving there and we can keep the innovation within Europe. And that is thanks to policies that we put in place instead of being relaxed to them. Perhaps
0: one last question. I mean, we talked about, a lot about the social and the uh, the climate issues, but, yeah, it's the, priorities. but yeah. we didn't yeah. talk much about the growth agenda. Is growth not a priority for the Greens, or do we need more productivity growth, do we need more growth in general, or should we rather accept less growth in our societies
2: um, to remain climate-friendly? climate, fri- climate friendly? Well, to be in one line, and then I will get, get further into it, we believe in quality growth. And to be very honest, if you look at the future economy, which is a more resource efficient economy, you will see that the growth will be will be less. Let's be honest about that. The idea that we can have it all with a resource, a resource uh, efficient economy and then at the same time having huge GDP rates, no. So you will also have to design smarter policies for the future in order to make sure that your social system can be there. So I'm not saying we are against Economic growth. What we are saying is that GDP in the end is a very limited factor that is in quality of life only a marginal part. There's a lot of other indicators that we need for quality of life, and that we should focus on as well. And I think that is what we're not doing in our policies. And in the end, we're not denying the economic rules that you need if you have an increase of your labor productivity in order to keep jobs, that you need a GDP growth. We're not stupid, but at the same time, we also do know that, for example, why are companies choosing to stay in Europe? They pretend it's just a cost factor, but we know that also quality, infrastructure, education level of the workforce, all these factors are very important to them as well. And too often, economically, those factors are being discarded.
0: I'm afraid that's all the time we have for the first block. Um, the second block talks about trade policy, and if you could put up the slide uh, on trade. I mean, this this is a very simple slide showing um, that, of course, trade is extremely important for, for Europe, both intra-European trade, so the one covered by the single market, uh, but also the extra-European trade um, is a very important part of, of our economic activity. It's it's important to different degrees for different countries. I mean, you are from the Netherlands. Obviously, the Netherlands is very yeah. Uh, you, you are a trading nation, very, very open to trade. But look at uh, German numbers: um, uh, the average export of a German citizen is something like 20, 21,000 uh, 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 euros per year, um, while the one for French is still 12,000 uh, uh, euros, euros per year. So, so we are really very, very open economies. Mm-hmm. Now the Greens traditionally have been relatively sceptical on uh, on trade uh, trade deals. European Parliament Um, and uh, so so I guess my starting question is how how do you deal with the trade deal uh, with the trade tensions the global trade tensions that we are currently seeing um, if you you became the Commission president how do would you support the multilateral trading system as it stands currently what would you do if it is under attack even more than currently what would you do if it even stops functioning Mm -hmm. which is a distinct possibility at the end of this
2: year Well, I think, first of all, we prefer multilateral trade agreements. So that would certainly be on the the WTO level. And then we can discuss to to what extent you do that. But, But multilateral trade agreements are our preferred option. But we do know very well that, for the moment, multilateral trade agreements are very far away. So there will be, then, a step going into bilateral trade agreements. I think where the Greens have been and are very critical is, of course, the development where we are going to now. The majority of of this trade, um, if you now want to take the next step in trade deals, it's not so much about tariffs anymore. It's much more about, you know, cooperation on our standards. And you know that. That's also why, for example, CETA, it's not a trade deal. It stands for Comprehensive Economic and Trade. Agreement. Those words are chosen deliberately. This is more of an economic agreement than a trade agreement. Why? Because really the added value that we can achieve is much more now in corporational standards. And then we really have to come with the question but who is in charge of that? Who is going to decide on which standards are important and which are not? And that's where we are very c- critical. This is really the next level of trade deals. Where we are giving away democratic powers to partly again companies or sometimes to even court cases. And then we can get also to the investor courts issues. Uh, uh, so this shows that we are not per se against trade deals, but we are very critical the direction the current trade deals are taking mm-hmm. because it is kind of okay, trade. Just for the sake of having trade or having more trade, we are moving forward, whereas I would say in the 21st century, trade is still an instrument, and it should be an instrument to to deliver on the Sustainable Development Goals. And unfortunately, look at the CETA agreement, the first chapters are on economic agreements, and it's all binding, should, shall, harsh, everything. Then somewhere, chapter 15, 16... Oh, yes, sustainable development. We forgot about that. And there it is the parties agree to take into consideration, maybe do this, maybe do that. That's the current status of trade deals. Pure economics first, sustainable development comes in chapter 15. And I think that should be turned around. Trade deals should be a race to the top. And at this moment, it's still too much a race to the bottom. No, but and we will lose that.
1: So what, what concretely would you do differently in negotiating a trade deal if you were in charge of the country We
2: would put the SDG targets first. So the SDGs are saying where we have to deliver on, on better social uh, justice, all these topics. That should be the aim of doing a trade deal. That's also why we are very clearly saying you should never do a trade agreement with a country that has not ratified the Paris Agreement. This is something... That the EU also said, the European Commission said, and then we're still negotiating with the US. This exactly shows you that it's not a priority. And I really think we should be very tough on that, to make very clear that any country that is not ratifying the Paris Agreement, we are not doing trade deals with them.
1: So you would pull out of the, uh, you wouldn't negotiate with the US trade and suffer the potential consequences of car tariffs or whatever else Mr. Trump might have in store so, for you. So, But EU. you,
2: and then in return, you would just follow the threats of Trump. That's what you would do then.
1: <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in your no. seat. I'm here. I know.
2: So that's why we will not bow for that kind of threats. Because we have a very clear agenda, and if the trade agenda is not delivering on also our sustainable development goals, what's then exactly the purpose of doing that trade deal? So your international cooperation should always be on the basis of your sustainable development targets. That's the core of our future, isn't it? This is also what the countries are agreeing when they go to Rio de Janeiro and sign up for a better world, and then forget about it when they're doing a trade deal. I think that inconsistency is also exactly why people are getting disappointed in politics.
0: But but concretely, if I I may, concretely we have a a global trade war ongoing between the US and China. We have a a threat from the US president to actually put a 25% tax, uh, not just on steel, but also on cars. What would you do concretely? I mean, there's directly lives and jobs uh, at stake. I mean, will you just say, no, because he doesn't follow the SDG, uh, I, don't, I, I don't negotiate with Mr. Trump? Or would you negotiate with him?
2: I would, not agree, I would not negotiate as long as he does not ratify the Paris Agreement. That would be, for me, a very clear red line.
3: And so, really, so sorry, except but, all
2: the job losses. But sorry, the other way around. People are saying this and then at the same time not following through. This is really also about the credibility of the European Union, and let's see, let's see, because in the end the tariffs, if he's going to do that, Trump also knows very well who's going to be hit, probably even more, that's also his own industry, we know that. So it is a policy that will hit both sides. So in the end, will he do so? That's the question. So
0: you're ready to do counter tariffs uh, against the US? Yes. Tit for tat? Yes. Okay, that's a a clear yes. So What about because the WTO? Think, but this is
2: really, but this is a fascinating one, right? The European Union, and you've put up the graph yourself, has huge negotiating powers because of the strength of our market. But then the moment when we are doing international negotiations, where we are very tough in words, you know, we were celebrating Paris, we were saying, Trump pulls out, we will take over the world lead. And then Trump says, boo, one more, and we are immediately backing off. This is, of course, not the credibility that Europe will deserve when you are doing future trade deals. let alone if you start negotiating with China. That's the next one. You were talking about it. What do you think the Chinese will look like if we are immediately giving in to the U.S.? They will have fun on that. So this is also about our future relations. Sometimes you need to make very clear where you stand and have to be strong on that. And sometimes that means repercussions that you know economically are not the wiser thing to do. But sorry, if Trump is so stupid to put forward his agenda, at a certain moment you have to react. Also, to make very clear to the Chinese one, you will be the next one to negotiate, and we will make sure that we are serious about sustainable development.
0: And beyond the sustainability and the climate issues, um, how do you deal with, for example, state-owned enterprises in China and forced technology transfer? I mean, do you, do you just accept that or...?
2: No, no, but I think there it's very clear, and we've also said that we have to be much tougher also on, the, for example, the steel dumping on the European market. I mean, that's that's uh, that's that's where another policy where Europe should be tougher um, on on just on uh, what I think what we should do more, and this is also an important one where you can also uh, combine trade policies and climate policies. When we are designing our own t- uh, emission trading system, putting a price on carbon, what we have done is creating a very difficult system by giving free allowances to a large extent to companies who have international competition and with those free allowances also weakening the the functioning of your trading system because your trading system is then also being polluted with free allowances on it. So you don't have a very well-functioning internal system. You can make that very much a very good functioning system, everything to be Uh, on the trading market, so everything should, uh, every party should do that. But then you need to protect those companies who are having international competition at the border. And that means a carbon adjustment factor at the border. So that you really are serious that you show the carbon price that our industry is paying will also be for those products coming on the European market. And that's where you show you are serious about really letting the polluter pay. And you may look cynical now, but is not every politician always talking about, yeah, the polluter pays principle, yeah, that's very important. And then in practice, not doing it. Again, that is undermining your credibility much more than for once now, really let the polluter pay.
1: What about human rights and how those might fit into future trade deals?
2: I think there, there we will have to discuss much more about transparency throughout the entire production chain. I think that is, of course, something that we have greens are fighting for as well. That's, I mean, some of these experts are more difficult to put into your prices, right? So I think there one of the key things is a full due diligence through the entire production chain, so that companies will have to be transparent on how they are doing their production. And if we are doing that, then you will see that that also will get set global standards, which quite often has been the case. So this is more this is more about transparency.
0: So, so I don't have a <coughs> a slide or question on on uh, on trade. But um, you make one there now. But there is a question on coalition building mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, perhaps we can ask that question, uh, question in this context, I mean, sure. suppose you are not uh, the biggest party and you don't become a commission There the is still a likelihood, <laughs> I know,
2: I, I see some people being relieved already, yeah. yeah.
0: So where's your red line when, you, when it comes to, to trade deals and you have to negotiate with, uh, with, uh, with coalition partners?
2: I'm not going to give you an exact red line here, but I do think that we will have to see a change of our, of our trade policies. That is for sure. Uh, And I really think this this is, I think the fundamental question is where do we position sustainable development goals? I think that is, for me, a key one. In a way, when we embrace the sustainable development goals in Rio de Janeiro, we said that this is the core of, of our future society. If you're very serious on that, then maybe you also should be a bit tougher on it in your trade deals. And I really think we should start trade deals with the sustainable development goals. This is what we want to achieve. Trade is a means to achieve something. It's not a target in its own. And I think that fundamental change is important, and that will have follow-ups, because from the current trade perspective, any environmental or social policy is a barrier to trade. So in WTO terms, we can do an environmental policy if we can tell them and show them that this is not a protectionist measure, but that it's, you know, for environmental purpose. So then WTA will say, we allow you this barrier to trade. Only that language already shows you the problem. Why is an environmental policy or a social policy a barrier to trade? Just think of that. That language, you use it on a daily basis, but it's weird. Well, I would ask the counter
0: question, um what if there was no wto i mean then there would be no no international body whatsoever to uh, to ensure a level playing field and the race to the bottom would be even bigger so so are you in the end supporting the wto um, and a, a rules based global trading
2: system or are well, you not supporting yeah. it it's good that you at least confess that there is a race to the bottom um so that's good, because that's a no, start. I said if there's no WTO. Then it's WTO. even bigger, you said. So. If there's no WTO, yes. Yeah, so then it's even bigger. So I think that's a good thing to, to start off with, that we want to try to prevent that race to the bottom. And I started by saying that I want a multilateral organization. That's WTO. But I want WTO also to make the UN targets first. And on that basis, being the fair judge of trade agreements, because I do think that there is a need of an objective judge there. And I'm very much for WTO being that. But I don't want it to be that trade is the target, and that they can say, well, because, yes, it's a barrier to trade, but okay, we allow it because it has an environmental objective. That's for me turning it upside down. So I'm very much for multilateral. I started with that, but they need to change their judgment rules.
0: Okay, so let's move to the third uh, the third block which is on the Eurozone and the EU economy. If you could put up the slide, um, the next slide. Uh, so this is a slide that looks um, from an upcoming paper uh, of ours that looks at um, uh, regional growth or regional conversions um, in the European Union. And uh, basically the red ones, the red regions are the ones that have strongly underperformed compared to um, where they should have con- uh, should have been in the last 15 years, um, given a normal an, a normal convergence equation. And so you see Greece, uh, Greece looks very bad. The south of Italy looks very bad. There's problems in, in Spain and in the south of Spain under Lucia. Mm-hmm. But you also see the north and the east of France. And so and you see sort of a, a rural urban divide in, in France very clearly. And by the way, you see a lot of red dots um, in the UK and on trade we didn't discuss the UK but uh, perhaps um, you want to comment at some stage also on Brexit. (laughs) So so I guess my my question is, I mean, this is, we are getting into, I mean, if you became the Commission President, that's the state of affairs you you take over, right? I mean, it's not a union where every region is doing well i mean the east of europe is doing relatively well but by the way if you dig in you will see that the growth is much stronger in the sort of richer percentiles of the uh, quintiles of the of the population uh, while the bottom 50% haven't converged much in the, uh, in the east of europe so you actually would inherit if i may say so um, a union um, full of divergences, um, partly related to the eurozone, partly related to domestic factors, Mm -hmm. you come in as uh, a commission president. What would you do? I mean, how do you address this issue? How do you address the rats?
2: I think the biggest issue is here, of course, lack of investment. And uh, I think um, you also have to put yourself the question, where does that come from? And I think partly this is also a problem created by Europe. For example, let's focus on Greece. The way we addressed (coughs) Greece during the Euro crisis was of course in an economic downturn, push them to cut their expenditure even further. This was deepening the crisis, and there's a lot of economic analysis showing that, yes, there was an economic crisis, but if you know during the economic crisis time, you know that consumption is going down because people are having less possibilities, industries are cutting down their investments because they don't know for sure how the future will be, if then on top of that the governments are going to cut down their expenditures, you are deepening the crisis. And that's exactly what we pushed for during the euro crisis, we deepened the crisis, with major impacts on unemployment, and that's also partly what you see here. I really think that there must be a room for a further investment agenda. This is also uh, why we have been pushing that investment agenda, where we are also fighting to make sure that the private investments are more going into those regions that really need it, um, which was a huge discussion in the Juncker investment plan, where the northern European countries were saying, okay, we have a Juncker investment plan, but let's not politicize it. Let's not, give, let's not make rules that are giving it to those regions where there is an underperformance. There must be on all neutral criteria. That was really a big fight. Whereas I think, as far as I know, we started with that investment agenda, especially for those regions where there is an underperformance.
3: And so, I think so that you
0: is would do some sort of a Juncker Plan 2.0 for the red regions? But is that the way I understand you?
2: Exactly, but then a real investment plan that is really helping in getting convergence. This also means, yes, we want to change the rules of our Stability and Growth Pact, because we do feel that there is too little room for investments, especially in economic problematic times. There is hardly any room for anti cyclical. Policies, And I think that is also a problem, so you need to change those rules. I think I will probably have more fights on that with Germany than with Greece. And I think it's about time that we have that debate, also stronger in Germany, because if you look at these problems, it's also partly because Germany is so much profiting from the intra-EU trade. They have a huge surplus on their trading balance. We have rules for that. But the European Commission has not done anything about it. Yes, in the semester they wrote it down. That was it. How can you expect, because I'm not saying that in the South they don't need reforms, but how can you expect reforms if those countries feel that the European Commission is tough on them and never on the northern countries that have a huge surplus on their trading? How can you expect that? And that is something that I would address.
1: So we've had, uh, there's been accusations around the Commission being quite weak in how it enforces its fiscal rules and what you're talking about is changing those fiscal rules. So can you you talk about how you would change those concretely and how you would also enforce it?
2: Well, I think... You know, here here we get into a very interesting discussion that a bit the 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 Netherlands with the Baltic states, you know, this kind of Hansen coalition are trying to put forward. What they're saying is, we want a commission that is even more objective. So we want tougher rules, less flexibility, and then just a commission who is just doing spreadsheet of economics. So non-political commission. Non-politically. Well, I I am of the opposite opinion because you can't run economics on a spreadsheet you can't in which country do you expect that the Minister of Finance is just a spreadsheet controller it's not its political decisions. so the European Commission it should be clear that they're taking political decisions on the stability and growth pact I would change those rules so there is more room for flexibility which means political judgment but then of course the democratic control on the European Commission should be much stronger because then it is further politicization of the EU, which I think is logical. When we choose for the Euro, we choose for a very political integration of our economy, then you also are very clear that this means that you will have somewhere more political guidance, but then you also need to improve the political and democratic control of the European Commission. Hmm. That's the direction. And then you have to be fair to the people that it's politics, economics is politics. And it's not how the Dutch and others are now portraying it, as if it's a kind of a spreadsheet uh, check. If that's going to do, we will never get it out of this system. And I think that's a debate we need to have. But 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 who
0: is the democratic control of uh, of of you when you take a fiscal policy decision uh, or or a recommendation in the Stability and Growth Pact, well, first or in the MIP for that matter? I mean, I think. Uh, there's lots of parliamentarians out here in Europe that would say we perfectly control what the German government is doing. I mean, that's certainly what the members of the Bundestag are, are thinking. And the same for the Dutch parliament, I'm sure. So so do you want to take away the democratic control from the national parliaments? No, or?
2: no. I said more democratic control. So now you're talking about taking away. What I'm saying is that Brussels is not democratically controlled good enough. First of all, the European Parliament really should have the right to make sure that an individual commissioner can be sent off. So in, in, the responsible, we made it a couple of years. We got, gave more tools to the European Commission. We even created a vice president. So having more political powers, I think the Dutch were pushing for that because as long as the Dutch thought they will be tough on Greece and Italy, we're fine. And then sometimes they started to become tough on themselves and then it was not so nice anymore. Well, sorry, that's when you have a more political commission. But then we also need to increase our democratic powers on that individual commissioner. And I want much more transparency in the council or in the Eurogroup, for that matters, and we're discussing more the Eurogroup here, if there is one, and I think, I I didn't watch Varoufakis last week, but I'm pretty sure he was complaining about the Eurogroup as well. (laughs) I don't agree that often with him, but I do agree with the black box of Eurogroup. And yes, the Bundestag is probably pretty capable of controlling Scholz in Berlin. But do they know exactly what he's saying in Brussels? Do we as Dutch exactly know what our minister is saying in Brussels? Do the Italians know exactly what they say in Brussels? No. The black box of the Eurogroup, that really should change drastically in order to make clear that it's politics taking place and there also should be democratic control of that system there. And then I think you will have more room for investments, and that, of course, should be done. The alternative is, I mean, this picture would have been much worse if we did not have the ECB. Mm. Well, that's a democratic problem, and uh, too many politicians have been very happy that the ECB (coughs) did some of its policies without any democratic control. I think that's a much bigger problem than what I'm promoting here.
0: But, but can I can I ask you still sort of on the initial question, I mean, so what concretely do we do about growth in Greece, growth in Italy, growth in parts of France? I mean, if you even want to constrain the ECB, I mean, who in the end is going to help? I mean, the, you, you talked a lot about the fiscal rules and mm-hmm. different interpretation, but a lot of the constraints that are being, uh, uh, that Greece and also Italy is confronted with, have less to do with the fiscal rules and much more to do Uh, With the fact that they have a high debt level that financial markets impose constraints on their ability to borrow um, That you know, we even want some market discipline through through financial markets So are you are you saying we should just give debt relief to Greece um, and and support? uh, uh, Italian investment through uh, European tax uh, taxpayers or or how, d- how do we go about in really dealing with this gross problem?
2: No, I think once you are more politicizing the room for investments, what I was promoting, then of course you also can steer more in which direction the investment should go mm-hmm. and I think that is a very important one and you will not be surprised that then of course I am combining that investment agenda again with my green agenda, talking about a future economy which we did in the first block you have to make that combination. And there's a lot of potential in Italy, but it's indeed underutilized. And I think that's partly, you can overcome that with a uh, investment agenda. And at the same time, then you can also ask in return some of the reforms that are needed in Italy. So again, I'm not saying that Italy itself should not do reforms, and I'm not saying that Europe and the European Commission should also have a debate on that, but what I'm saying is that you have a much more credible agenda if you are combining those questions and demands you put on those countries, if you combine it with a credible investment agenda, (coughs) that is also helping them. And on Greece, last points on debt relief you know that the Greens have been saying that debt levels of Greece are so high that there must be a certain level of debt relief. But that is for Greece a very specific case. Mm. And I think that is something, by the way, we promise it to Greece. Again here, talking about credibility, we pushed them in all kinds of reforms. We pushed them in a huge austerity agenda, which they did, and then we said, once you do that, we will talk debt relief. Oops, we forgot about the second part. We're not talking about it anymore. Again, what's your credibility in Netherlands and Germany if you do that promise and you do not fulfill that promise? Then, of course, at a certain moment, you will create an atmosphere that in Greece they say, you know, what am I doing here in the European Union? And then all the politicians are suddenly surprised that there is so much Eurocriticism. There you really, if you are promising a debate on debt relief once Greece has done its reforms, I think it's about time that we are follow up that promise to them, isn't it?
1: Uh, We've had proposals that have been for discussions going back to the Eurozone reform, Eurozone black box, as it will. So reform proposals there around Eurozone finance minister, Eurozone budget, um, various uh, discussion points. How would you complete the Eurozone architecture? How would you change it?
2: I think in a general one, I think one of the biggest things that we need to create is still more solidarity within the Eurozone. And yes, some people will immediately call that a transfer union, right? It's like, oh, transfer union. But maybe to make very clear, the Eurozone is a transfer union. It's a transfer union mainly of goods from north to south. It is. The country profiting the most of the Eurozone is Germany. All the analysis show they are profiting a lot on the Eurozone. It's a transfer union. And then we also have to make sure that maybe at a certain levels we need to also really complete the Eurozone policies by also creating... More solidarity the other way around. And I still think that one of the easiest ways is by looking at our debt levels. And yes, I think Eurobonds can be a very good promise there. And I would do it in a clever way where you say we are making Eurobonds to the level of 60%, because that will create an incentive for all the countries to lower their debt levels to that level, because higher will become more expensive. And then to that 60%, you are making euro bonds. So you are creating solidarity in the system. And yes, you can call that transfer union whatever you want. But I really think we should be very honest to everyone in the European <coughs> Union. We choose for the euro. We choose for the eurozone. With that, we created a transfer union. And maybe it's about time to complete that reform instead of now doing it halfway, which is, again, mostly profiting the richer countries in the EU and that's exactly that feeling that Europe is not playing out mm. in a fair way until now
0: well perhaps we created the transfer union but certainly when we created it uh, we promised to the citizens that we wouldn't create it so um, that's um, yeah but that's that's exactly that's what, what my what Helmut yeah, was but that's saying.
2: exactly my uh, complaint and and accusation right. that that was a false <coughs> promise
0: so one last word on uh, on this island uh, <laughs> which has a lot of red, um, yeah. UK and Brexit. Yes. Um, yeah. You being the commission president, what kind of relation will you establish with the UK?
2: Well, I think the, the political answer is that they should decide first. Um, you know, I still hope that we can prevent the Brexit. It's really a lose-lose case for all of us. So in that sense, if we can still prevent it, it's, it, it would be something important to me to, to, to establish that. Um, I'm not sure we can. Um, But if we can, uh, if it will not, if it will not be a, uh, and there will be a Brexit, I think what is very important is that we, it's in our best interest to keep our markets as close as, as possible. And yes, that means de facto, it means a soft Brexit. But to be very honest, I think the only possible majority you can find in the British society on a Brexit is a softer Brexit than what Theresa May is pushing for now. The attitude of the EU has been, okay, these are your red lines. If these are your red lines, this will be the Brexit agreement. But I think it's about time that we are really also making clear that trying to get a Brexit through party politics with a majority in the Tory party instead of a majority in the society, is not giving a Brexit that will at least keep the problems as, l- as small as possible.
1: Follow up, or shall we move on? I think the next block. <laughs> I <laughs> thought you would come in now. I don't know that I can uh, <laughs> say that calmly. Um, okay, well, let's move on to the final block then, which is the um, competition oh, industrial sorry. policy and... Uh, still seems to be fine up there for everybody. Uh, So competition policy, uh, industrial policy, and uh, innovation. You've touched on innovation, but we'll probably leave that to the end. So if we start with competition policy, we've had a fairly concrete example recently with the uh, veto of the Siemens-Alstom merger, which really ignited this this debate. So the Franco-German push to say, we need to really help Siemens-Alstom to become a world-beating sort of company to compete against this Chinese competitor who may be coming eventually, um, compared to the commission and Commissioner Vestager who stood the ground and said, actually, the the facts don't support that case. The companies needed to do something quite dramatic to get approval and decided against it, so she vetoed it. Um, What would you do if you were commission president? What's your view on that decision?
2: Well, I think what is at first very important is that I would criticize one part very big in the the German-French proposals, and that's the idea that the national member states can overrule the commission. (laughs) I mean, we decided for an internal market for European competition rules, and if then one decision we don't like and immediately we start pushing for overruling that, that's the end of the internal market. that's the end of our competition rules. That's really, that part of the proposal is, sorry, it's stupid, but I think what I hope that this proposal will do is having a broader discussion on our future competition policies. I think the current, they are pretty technocratic, the current competition policies, and I do think that also in our competition policies we have to take more into consideration also the global context a world where you see that China, US, Russia, they are all on that global market and they are competing and not always in the fair rules that we made for ourselves. So I do think that really in our competition rules there should be more room for political judgment there and also looking at the global context, but it should always remain in the hand of a European Commission because they are responsible for that. So Opening up that discussion, you know, should we not be a bit more looking at the rules again? Are they fit for purpose for the future? Certainly if you look at global competition, let's have that discussion. I'm open to that. And as a president of the commission, I would say, okay, let's have a discussion on that. But I would really make very clear that if you, in the end, don't leave it to the European commission to really do the judgment, then really we are just undercutting the entire internal market, which will hit us all. That part really doesn't make sense. So I think as a (coughs) a president of the commission you do, it's welcoming the product, saying, interesting, let's have a future discussion. We see the reason to do that. However, here are some of the red lines that we draw, and I think there's a lot of member states that would join in drawing those red lines.
1: In bringing politics into it, though, don't you sort of run the risk that you will get a reaction from... From other competition authorities. So, right now, they can, European officials can stand up and say, we consider these things as flag neutral. And if we start to have political considerations in those, then what's to stop the Chinese authorities or the Russian authorities from doing the same thing to when our companies want to go in there and they're considering?
2: They are doing it. Do you really think that there is no political interference? More overtly? (laughs) Yeah, but this is really sometimes a bit the naive European attitude that we think that the entire world is a kind of a fair market where everyone is Hmm. on fair rules. You know, it's a brutal world outside. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and I think it's about time that the Europeans become a bit less naive on this, that they know that this is the case. I still think that it's very important to base it on your rules, but in those rules you will have a bit more flexibility. Again, you have to increase your political accountability of, of course, who is doing that. Uh, I think that is uh, very important as well. But we do know that internationally these are all geopolitical tools that people are working with. And of course we can still think that that is unfair, but I also think it's about time that we do realize that this is also in the global context (laughs) we are acting.
0: But that means in the end you uh, you accept uh, watering down a bit um, uh, our competition rules, our merger control, you accept uh, bigger European champions, even if they go at the expense of the European consumer just so that we can, can compete in third markets. Is that I, the direction of travel?
2: I think that we have to be honest about that there is a political judgment at a certain moment. You cannot, I mean, this, <coughs> this idea that there will be strict rules and that there's always a zero or one decision. For now, Vestager is politically deciding on which files she's interfering or not. For example, on tax avoidance, why is she doing Apple and not others? Mm. She's not doing a full analysis of where she is going to do it, it's it's quite ad hoc. And when we put out the report, IKEA is a problem, she went into IKEA. do you think she ever would have done IKEA if we not had not published the report? There is, in every decision, a political decision. Let's be honest about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's going down. I think it's honest that sometimes, in some cases, you can see that there is a dilemma between creating a well-functioning market that is, theoretically, leading to lower price for the consumers within the European Union and global competition. Let's be honest about that, that there are trade-offs, that there are dilemmas. And let's not pretend that we can just make rules that is always a binary choice in the end because that's what it is. Again, this idea that the European Commission can be a judge that is just saying it's yes or no, this is not reality. And I think we have to be honest about that. We have to create that flexibility. But that also means, yes, being honest that you are having a more political role, which is there already. Vestakker is choosing politically which files she takes on board and which not. But she's open about it, isn't she? She's not open on why she's not doing files. She's open on files which she's doing. But there's a lot of tax avoidance she's not addressing. Has she ever explained to you why she's not doing the others? Has she explained to you why she was not doing IKEA until we came up with the report? Did she explain that to you? Not to me. She said to me, oh, that's a very good report of the Greens. We are going to look into it. That's very nice. But she didn't do it before why not because it's political it's politics <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I'll have another glass of water
1: <laughs> I would um, I think there's it's definitely acknowledged politics within the choice of some cases mm-hmm. and in the speed of some cases and possibly also in the timing of announcement yeah. of some decisions and some but of the
2: decisions are postponed indeed uh, yeah, and all that the, but
1: but in yeah. the specific decisions of themselves in the merger control rules and the predictability in the ability to withstand the ECJ challenge I think that's where my understanding is that's where the nub of keeping the rules predictable right. and to the rules is important and the idea that there are other instruments, if you want to talk about state subsidies or lack of access to protected markets, the argument that they make is, well, there are other instruments. We have the international procurement instrument, we have trade policy, we have other instruments that we can do that with. So uh, the idea of, well, given there is politics and how it feeds in, the actual rules, the implementation of themselves, the predictability of that yeah, but still needs again, to be again, it's not
2: black and white, right? I'm not saying take away all the rules, take away all the predictability. What the court of justice will do is say we look at whether the commission has followed the rules. If the rules to a certain extent have a predictability but not to the full 100%, the court of justice will say, well, all the rules they've applied and it's okay or not. And this is what she's doing already, Vestager. Why did she now exactly agree the merger of Monsanto and Bayer? Why exactly? There's a lot of people saying, well, we read the rules differently. So there was also there a political decision in the end to say, yes, it's possible. But there already you see there is a political debate possible. So again, I'm not saying no rules. It's not that black and white. What I'm saying is, be more honest about dilemmas that we will face in a global market where you do see that global players are playing politics with their tools, that you sometimes have to consider also other issues when you are on that global market, at the same time the dilemma that we want to have a well-functioning market for our European citizens. I want that too. That's why we have the rules. But there there is a level of political judgment there, which the Commission is already applying, I think we should be more straightforward and honest about it by making that in the rules. The Court of Judgment can still do a huge assessment of it, but that the suburb will say, well, this was part of their flexibility, and, but all the rules that she had to apply have been applied. The Court of Justice will still have that role.
0: But I'm, I, I still don't really get where you're getting with, uh, uh, where, you, where you go to with this politicization. I mean, yes, there is politics and we need to be transparent about it. That's, that's all fine and good. But what, do, what does it mean, concretely, for decisions? I mean, take the Siemens Alstom again. I mean, Manfred Weber, your competitor for, uh, for the position, tweeted, no, this was a big mistake, this decision. We should have allowed the merger yeah. because you know we need to compete with China. It would have meant also 51% of the European market share would have been in the hand of one company, yeah. which probably means taxpayers that pay for these trains Would have paid extra, and Margrethe Vestager, in her her ruling, has clearly said, "Well, Siemens and Alstom could not make the case clearly that there would be lots of efficiency gains and prices would be lower." So, so in the end, yes, it was a decision that will have to stand in the Court of Justice. Yes, there may have been some politics in there, um, but at the end of the day, I mean, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I mean. Would you, as a commission president, support that decision, or would you have allowed it? I mean, would you, would you, would you want to have bigger European companies, even this, if it means higher prices for consumers? In this
2: case, I think I think I would have followed Vestager's uh, decision. I mean, I also did not tweet that. I found that a very stupid tweet of Manfred Weber. I mean, on what basis did he say that? I think because she followed the current rules. What I'm saying is that for future decisions, there might be that you have to consider also that global market. Or, you will be surprised, I think there should be in the competition rules more room for sustainability. Just one example in the Netherlands where there was a consortium of parties saying we want to make sure that there is more consideration of animal welfare in our chicken products. Vestak said no to it. Because it could lead to a higher price of the consumers. There you go again. Technocratic approach, higher price, it's a problem. Animal welfare, anyone, we don't care. Exactly, that's the problem. The world is complex outside. There should be room for political dilemmas. And then, of course, you should be clear about why you decided something, taking into consideration that political dilemma. But first change those rules, then do it. And don't as what a bit Manfred Weber was doing it, and I think here the campaign might be a bit part of it. Never talk about any problem with competition policy, but then when there is something that is big in Germany, being tough on Twitter, sorry, that's not politics.
0: So so coming to to Slido, you mentioned animal welfare is one criterion that could play into competition policy. Uh, A person uh, called Paul uh, asked the question, in light of the Siemens-Alstom debate, in order to maintain its status as a world leader in clean energy,
2: will the EU need to change its competition policy? Let me be very honest that I did not look at the rules with that angle yet but i can imagine that that should be a consequence yeah because i do think that if you are taking your agenda serious you need a decarbonization of the energy sector first the best way is of course renewables because that's also at the same time very much making your own energy so we need that to have that And I think that is also something where we can be globally leading on. So let's see whether the current competition rules are favorable for that or not. I'm not now going to be very tough on Twitter say yes or no. I'm saying that you should take these issues into consideration in future competition rules. But you need to change the rules for that. Okay,
0: I think uh, I don't have a watch here anymore, but a uh, clock, but I think the 15 minutes are over. Uh, Feels so like it. <laughs> so, so uh, I think we can, we can open up questions to the audience, but sure. also if you have a, a general question. Um.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, we're expecting fragmentation, that's what all the polls are indicating. Yeah. Um, and so I want to understand what kind of coalition you'd be willing to build. Would you be willing to go into coalition with the EPP? And what are your red line policies? What are the things that you absolutely would want out of that?
2: Yeah, I think, I think what, we, what we are saying very clear is that we are willing to talk to any democratic party, European party, and the EPP is part of that. So we are willing to talk. But we also will put our clear demands. I'm not going to very much clearly define the red lines, but <coughs> our priorities are climate change, fighting climate change, social Europe, taxation, what we discussed, democratic Europe. Rule of law, that's, that's, I mean, if there should be now one thing which we should not politicize, it's the rule of law. Those are the fundamental values basing our, where we base our society on. These are also the first articles of the Lisbon Treaty, and they are there for a reason. Mm. And there, you really should depoliticize. And I don't think the commission did that. They were sometimes technocratic on issues where they should not be technocratic. And they were political on issues where they should not be political. And I think rule of law is one of those issues where they have been too political, where they are going against Poland because it's not part of the two big family groups. And they're not doing anything on Hungary where fortunately, thanks to the Greens, the European Parliament now changed something about. I think that is important, so democratic Europe is the third one. Those three issues we really uh, will put on the table, and we expect that the EPP is really giving and changing its policies fundamentally on that. If not, we will not support Manfred Weber, very clear. But we will talk.
0: Okay let's uh, uh, let's perhaps uh, collect a few questions um, and uh, let me repeat these are questions so please no statements and opinions of yours please ask quick and uh, pointed questions and we will collect a few questions yeah. so there's a gentleman here a gentleman there
3: and following up the rule of law question and, and please identify yes. yourself sorry Claude Kahn from the UN Human Rights Office the regional office for Europe here in Brussels. Um, following up the rule of law question, the, there's an ongoing drafting process to strengthen the ability of uh, rule of law accountability in the next financial framework. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see the question of stopping funding to Hungary, Poland, Romania, other others yeah. that depart the frame of fundamental values?
0: We, we collect. Uh, the second one is here, uh, to, um, Ted. Yeah. yeah. <coughs>
3: Todd Buell, I'm a reporter with Law 360. I write about tax policy, so what you said very early on about uh, unanimity and the Lisbon Treaty made me, you know, I was quite interested. Could you just clarify again exactly how the commission could overrule the council and you know, bouncing off of Guntram's question a little bit, I mean, is that realistic? Thank you.
0: And, and perhaps uh, I only see men raising the hand. It would be nice to have a woman. So, so let me ask one question, which is on gender: Is it time for a woman for a woman to become Commission President? For example, Scar Keller? <laughs> so perhaps we take those three, and then we go for the yeah. second round.
2: Yeah. Maybe immediately to you, Guntram, Ska Keller would be an absolutely great president of the European Commission, and I very much support her. So that's on Ska.
0: But in general, is it time?
2: I, I do think it's time. To be very honest, yes, I do think it's time. If you see that every five years, the, Europe, the new president of the European Commission has to start begging to countries, please, give me a woman, then you get a better post in the European Commission, it's, it's really pathetic. That we are still—I think we are in the 21st century—and that we still are begging for countries coming up with women is really a disgrace, and I really think that should change.
0: Well, I can only say of the six uh, lead candidates, uh, we have we have six men. You are, of course, an exception because you have a two. I'm, I'm and, 50%. And, yeah. and and the liberals, and the liberals have uh, have more than 50%. They actually, they have, so
2: they have uh, seven people. I still don't know exactly what that means, but there, there are five. Yeah. But also the GUE, which you don't have on your list, they also have a woman. They also come with okay. two and one woman. Right. Now, it's the two big groups coming with a man again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's take um, the other questions. Uh, on, the financial, on the financial framework, um, it's a very good question, but it's also a difficult one, because... As I said, we need to be much tougher and more objectively strong on the rule of law. But then also, one of the sanctions you can do is, of course, cutting your your funds to those uh, countries. The problem, however, quite often is you are hitting the regions and you are not hitting the head of state who is responsible for the government doing things. So what we have uh, as a position is that we say we are not necessarily for cutting your funds. What we are saying is that Brussels should take over the decision making on where the funds go to. So you take away this co-decision powers that those countries have. So if you are really not working according to the rule of law that we think, then you should take away that power. And that is most of the time a really big punishment. Look at Orban who loves to give his old village where he was born another football stadium. I think taking away that possibilities is hitting him much more than t- taking away the money, because now they use the money to give it to the friends where they want it, and I think give, taking away that power is more effective than taking away the money. So that's a bit of a subtle reply that I would do to that. Um, on taxation, um, your last part, whether it's uh, it's credible or rather, redi- what were the consequences? Be? Me- yeah, but I think we discussed on that. I mean, we we can't see the consequences yet. But what I do think is that it's very important that the European Union stre- shows strength and credibility. That if we are making a statement, that we follow up. Because in the end, certainly in negotiations with the United States, it's much more important to stick to your position and be credible, instead of showing your weakness and knowing that you will be a play ball. Where that will end, we don't know. But also, the other way around, we don't know where it will end if you are showing your flexibility. And then on the article, and the problem is I forgot the exact article. That I think it's 116, yeah, 116 right? Yeah, I, I had it in the back of my mind, but I didn't dare to throw it out, because if it's the wrong, I will get that back. But it is Article 116 of the treaty. That's giving that possibility. So, so we have a gentleman here.
0: Um, yes.
3: Thank you. So Lars got formally with the commission, I was in charge of the CAP. Mm. The CAP, the structural funds, the social funds, are all transfer unions. It always was the case. It yes. still are the case. It's probably the reason why the member states, the northern ones, question. are against increasing the 1% uh, income uh, limit on uh, on resources. I have a question re- regarding the stability and growth pact. I could totally agree with you. The idea of having eurobonds but another thing is the 3% deficit rule the 3% deficit rule says basically that every public expenditure going beyond 3% is a bad thing why not make a clear distinction like companies do between investments which yeah. are productivity enhancing uh, like research and development education infrastructure highways uh so, golden rule. So, fourth, yeah. and create a positive list, because otherwise okay. it's completely open, okay. a positive list on what kind of public expenditure is uh, considered to be investment and should therefore be excluded from the 3% deficit rule, which okay. are okay. productivity enhancing and so forth. Okay. Thank you.
0: Okay. Thank you. So, then there is a, a question. Let me t- take in the back. I think the gentleman there in the back was asking a question. All the way at the back. Um, There's a Oh, and there, uh, the absolutely. Yeah, many thanks, because I imagine it so far. <laughs> I'm Tommaso Di Fonso from Enel, and uh, speaking about, uh, again, climate change, I think that some important steps has been done from this current commission on renewables and uh, mobility, as you mentioned. Uh, what do you see as a, a possible priority for the new commission? I mean, maybe starting to heavily intervene on uh, other industries, yeah. So priority for the new commission. Thank you. Thank you. The third question is here, the lady. Um, second row, second row on the right, yes.
1: Hello, I'm Eleanor. I'm here as a youth ambassador. Um, it's great uh, to hear you talk about the SDGs in the context of, context of trade. Um, we know the SDGs are a um, global agenda, and they need to be achieved with a global solidarity. I was wondering if you could reflect a bit on their relationship with uh, African countries and other developing countries, and beyond trade, what's Europe's role in ensuring that we achieve the SDGs by 2030?
0: Um, let me add a fourth question from Slido, yeah. if you accept, um, which got 15 likes. What brought you as a researcher and climate researcher hmm. to the European Parliament?
2: Yeah. good question. So. Sometimes one that's. <laughs> um, um, uh, first, on the transfer union, and it was a bit the golden rule you were re- referring to, right? Uh, to be very honest, I'm not so much a fan of that, because then you come into the discussion what is an investment? And that is not a a clear-cut answer either. And you get a kind of, no, we don't count this investment, and we do not, and, oh, I'm not in the 3% yet, so I'll also take out this one. That's why I prefer more flexibility in the rules. Every part is, every investment should be part of that. So you should have a guidance in that direction, but there is flexibility, and on the basis of that, the commission gave, which, by the way, the commission has. The commission has this flexibility, but they are not always good in, arguing for it and f- by the way this one what was one of the most stupid remarks over the last 5 years was juncker's remark because it's france that was because we know it was not exactly the reasoning why the commission did it but of course juncker was doing this a bit it's juncker's humor doesn't always and it doesn't land well that often i have to uh, i have to say and of course now still a lot of people say see this is the commission because it's france they get more flexibility. Whereas no, he should have said, there are good reasons why there is flexibility in the rules, and this and this and this is the argument why France is getting it. But he probably had not had the arguments in his head, and that's why he said, because it's France. Very funny, but it undermined the role of the commission totally. Stupid. And I think that flexibility I prefer than getting into a discussion which investment is part of it and which not. So that, that would be my, uh, my answer on that mm-hmm. one. Um, on the Future uh, for the next commission, I still think we're not there yet with energy and transport. I mean, energy, still infrastructure, huge challenges. We still need a coal phase out on transport, aviation, need to talk about aviation. But on the others, I think what is very important is the energy intensive industry. If you see how they now need to move to a zero carbon uh, economy, then it's very clear that the zero, that the energy intensive industry needs industry support for innovation. That's why we need a stronger ETS system. If you have a stronger ETS system with your border checks, then your revenues can go up and those revenues should be allocated much more to innovation for those energy intensive industries that we are doing now. That's a fight with the ministers of finance because they hate it that money gets allocated But I think that's also the clarity that industry deserves and needs in order to push them to zero carbon. That's the the price I'm willing to pay for getting the industry moving. But I think the energy-intensive industry is really the next step that we have to work on. So steel, cement, chemicals. Um, Developing countries to be very honest i do think the trade agenda is very crucial because of course we can talk about the oda money and all that but it's peanuts if we don't get our trade policies in place and it's the same with cap reform also our agriculture policies if we don't make them fair and green you also you can talk about any oda money what we want but that we take away with agriculture policy so i think that is very important but of course when we are talking about investments and ODA money to developing countries, it should be much more long-term focused. What you see now is that, oh, there is a migration crisis and all the ODA money goes to the migration crisis, not realizing if we don't do something about other policies, the migration crisis of the future might be much bigger than what we are trying to address now. So I think future-oriented ODA money is also very important. Why did I go into the European Parliament? Oh, yeah, you asked it through... Um, through the
0: light of 14 likes. So it's 14 likes. the most, uh, most
2: yeah. liked question. Um, I think uh, 10 years ago... Uh, oh, this really sounds like granddad talking. Um, <laughs> 10 years ago when I was still young... Um, well,
0: you are still pretty young.
2: <laughs> 10 years ago, um, I got frustrated by seeing that all your analysis and cl- uh, scientific research on climate change was giving one very clear message, and that is, we can do something about it. It's good for the economy, but we should do it now. And to be very honest, this is still the message of all the climate researchers 10 years later. We can do it, we should do it, and it's also best if we do it. The problem was, was at the political level, and I thought I have two options in 2008 when I decided. I can become old and cynical and just shout at the television that all the politicians are stupid. Which, by the way, is an option I can still do, of course, later on. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least I can try to change it myself, go into politics, and then later on see maybe that indeed I go for the cynical option later on anyhow. And that's why I went into politics. And then maybe on a positive note, it's not that bad, politics. I even liked it, and I still like it.
0: Very good. So I think we have time for two or three more. There's the gentleman with the white um, here at the back. um.
3: Hello, I'm Sophia Noiret from uh, IOM, International Organization for Migration. I have two questions. One,
2: which is related to migration. I would like to know your views on the situation and, and, and the policies that you would like to implement in case you are president of the European Commission. And the second uh, question is not related to that. It's uh, related to the to the map that we've seen uh, earlier with uh, this uh, Western and Southern Europe in red and the rest in, in green. Uh, so there are some talks, I'm French, uh, about leaving the, the euro in Italy the same. What are your views on that? Uh, so would this make sense? Well.
0: Then the gentleman here in front. Is there one more lady, please? Uh, uh, thank you. I'm a correspondent of Deutsche Welle, Yuri Shiko. So you mentioned uh, this dependence on resources coming from the countries with the uh, undemocratic regimes. But there are other people who are saying, well, we need to trade more with Russia. Uh, while failing fails in we will need more gas. So uh, what do you want to do? Uh, th- does the unit to trade more with Russia? Or how would you do... How- would you decrease this dependency or the need to import more resources from Russia and other similar countries? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. So that gives you three questioners, but four questions. Yeah. (laughs) Um. Uh,
2: On on the first question on migration, I, I think it's a bit going too far now go into this entire topic because then we're sitting here for another hour. But I think what is very important is that in our policies, and in principle we do it, but I'm not always sure that people realize it, and this is also something that I think politicians should improve on, we really should distinguish between refugees and economic migrants. We do that in theory, but there are too many politicians who love to throw them in one ball, right? Because then we can just talk about other people. And I think one thing, the public support for helping refugees in the European Union is still very, very big. In all the polls you see, there's a vast majority of Europeans ready and willing to help refugees, for sure. And I think that is very important. And unfortunately, too many politicians are still afraid of saying that, which I don't understand, because the people are there wiser than a lot of the politicians. I think the issue is, of course, how to deal, how to judge refugees, and what is not a refugee, an economic migrant, what term you want to put on it. And I think there, of course, in our current system, there is really this problem that every country is still dependent of where they come in, where they enter the first, and they need to do that system, which is really an unfair system. And those countries complaining about it, they are right. But here, I would like to go to Italy, where Salvini is complaining about a lack of European solidarity on this issue. And then the next day standing with Orbán celebrating how much they like each other. This shows how Salvini is profiting from a non-solution. Because Orbán should be his opponent. Orban doesn't want European solidarity. So if there is one politician Salvini should work against, it's Orban. But what this shows is that they need each other, because that will keep the crisis around refugees and migrants unsolved, and that's where they feed their popularity on. And I think politicians should expose that more instead of working together with them. This is to the EPP in Austria. Um, uh, leaving Euro, no. No. I think you can have a very long academic discussion about was it good to do the euro back in 1999 when it was officially, or was it? Yeah, We were discussing it in the 90s. Was that now really the best at that moment? Did we, were we honest about the political consequences of it? I'm not sure, but I think we are in it now our internal market, our capital markets, the, the Eurozones have been so much interlinked with each other, you cannot unravel it anymore, and now we have to go for the better solutions as part of the Eurozone, and that's where we were discussing about. This is, and it's not, it's not original, I know, but it is a bit like scrambled eggs. <laughs> you can have a debate whether it was wise to throw in all your eggs, but now debating, I want my egg back, sorry, that's it's impossible. Um, yeah, on, on resource, let, let me just, just maybe stick it to the question, because how do you want to decrease your dependency? I think that's the core of our green policies. I mean, this is renewables will decrease your dependency on energy imports. A circular economy will decrease your dependency of materials to be imported. I think that's that's the to keep it short. Our relation, our future relation with Russia, I think We have to discuss that, and we can, but not to say, well, because we want to have that relation, we should not have our resource, uh, we should increase our resource dependency whatsoever. I don't think, I think our future relations should be further on to that. But, and I will keep on saying that, then also here we need to be very clear and tough, and as long as Russia is really breaking international rules and laws, Crimea, then there is no room for future trade negotiation whatsoever with Russia. As I'm tough on those who are not ratifying Paris, I'm also very tough on international law and sorry, Russia still needs to change their policies there. I think that's a matter of consistency which I always said to politicians they should be. So I'll try to be that.
0: Okay, um, do you want to close?
1: (laughs) I was just going to say thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that was very interesting. More insightful. Um, yes?
0: Yes, and please join Good. us in, yes. in thanking thank uh, thanking Bas thank Aykut for his frank remark.